<clears throat> I want to welcome everyone who are with us this morning. We're glad to have everybody. Glad to see some visitors. Always good to have y'all visiting with us. You'll see uh, a few things congregations like when people bring their little ones. We love loving on them being here. There's a, we've got a few on the way, so it's exciting times. Um, great thing happened to me this morning. Woke up with uh, more sleep than I intended to get the night before. And it was nice. It's, uh, and it sounded like from the worship, everyone woke up about as uh, coffeeed up and breakfasted as, as I did. So it's good to see everybody, particularly this morning. Um, as Steve mentioned, I want to uh, encourage everyone to come to our Wednesday nights. Uh, in the auditorium class, we'll be studying out of Acts. Our series will be called A Church That Shines. So we look forward to studying out of Acts with you guys and just, uh, like Steve said, getting back to a, a semblance of normalcy. Um, <clears throat> this morning, as part of our continued series in the Old Testament, uh, this morning we're going to take a look at uh, a part of the Bible that I think is normally kind of hard to study in this setting, which is why we avoid it, at least I, I do sometimes. Uh, I want to take a look at one of the Psalms. Uh, but before we, uh, you start turning there, I want us to get the context of it, because this particular psalm, uh, there's a bit of a story behind it. So if you have your Bibles, we're actually going to start at 2 Samuel 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 11. Uh, as most of you may know, it is David who wrote most of the psalms, and much of the book of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings is about David's life. So... Uh, and if you read the Psalms, when you're flipping through, you'll see there's little notes at the top of some of the chapters that tell us when this particular Psalm was written or what encouraged uh, the setting or the inspiration for that particular writing. And so in many of the Psalms, you can actually flip back to, to Samuel or Kings or even Chronicles and you can find out what sort of inspired uh, that particular writing. And that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. So like I said, if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 11. Um, Chapter 11 contains some pretty well-known events from David's life. If we, if we know much about David, there's a lot in uh, 2 Samuel 11 that takes place that's pretty noteworthy. Uh, but those events are not exactly the focus. So just know, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, just know that David desired a woman named Bathsheba. But she was married to Uriah. And Uriah is not just anybody. Uriah was actually David's very close friend. Um... But David has Uriah killed. David has Uriah killed for a very specific reason. So that he could be, so he can take his wife. Most of chapter 11 can be summarized by the last two verses, I think. Um, 11, 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had done the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's always interesting when uh, the author tends to tell us not only that someone did something bad, but hey, it's about to get worse. <laughs> what he did displeased the Lord. Um, so in chapter 12, there's a prophet of David who's in David's court. His name is Nathan. And in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, Nathan uh, confronts the king, but he does so in a very indirect way because confronting the king is a very dangerous task. So he tells a kind of a parable, a made-up story, you know, teaches some kind of lesson or reveals something in sort of an indirect way. 
And he, and he tells this lesson about a man who, who had everything, but he saw a poor man who just had one sheep, and he takes the man's sheep. And uh, I want to read for us just David's reaction to the story that, Dave, that uh, Nathan is telling David. Uh, look at uh, chapter 12, verse 5. Chapter 12, 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Nathan says to David, you are the man. The conviction. David is angry at the man at this story, at the, this, uh, this man for what he did. And Nathan says, David, this story is about you. The person you're mad at is you and Nathan actually goes on to to sort of chastise David a little bit more he kind of rails into him for what he's done quite understandably and when Nathan is done speaking uh, David has a different reaction skim down to verse 13 in verse 13 David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord has also put away your sin you shall not die nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. In a very terrible twist of fate, it is not David who receives the punishment for his sins, but it is indirectly, as Nathan says, it is his child who dies. Nathan says, this child that you had with a, another man's wife, this child that you've probably been waiting for and longing for in spite of what you've done, the child will die. I imagine there's a few of us this morning for whom the words resonate a bit more than they might normally. It is here, after these events, after his great sin, after his confrontation with Nathan, after this story and after this, this punishment being handed down, it is here that David writes the following words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's the opening verses to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is going to be our, our focus of our message this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there. One thing I do enjoy studying about Psalms when I was a kid is that uh, it's one of the easiest books in the Bible to find. If you flip your Bible about halfway open, you'll probably be somewhere in Psalms. It's pretty easy. It's right there in the middle. But uh, Psalm 51. I think Psalms and, and Proverbs are probably two of the hardest to do a, a book study from. If we're studying the Bible and if we're teaching a class or a series from just one book, I think Psalms or Proverbs are probably one of the hardest ones to do. And that's because if we're just reading those... Uh, those one chapter at a time, there's not a lot of context. There's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of wisdom and great praise in Psalms. If you, in fact, if you open up your hymnal, probably 90% of what's in there was inspired from the Psalms. 
But sometimes it's hard to make life application from Psalms or Proverbs other than the very surface level writings. And I think a lot of that is because there's no context. There's no story for us to really digest, no application, or it's harder to make application. I think uh, I I read that uh, psychologists say our brains best absorb information as stories. And when I think about that, that makes sense because when Jesus came, it's... His entire ministry, almost all of his preaching was done in stories, most of it. We call them parables, but that's, that's what they were. They were little stories that just had messages. It's why uh, the Gospels are easier to study sometimes than just picking up First Corinthians or Romans and trying to dig into it. It's why if I ever have to teach, if I ever have to teach like an Old Testament class, like a series, <clears throat> I always like starting Joshua. Because from Joshua all the way to about 2 Kings is one long, like, Star Wars, Game of Thrones length story. There's a lot to digest in that. So I wanted us uh, this morning to study a psalm that kind of went with uh, a story. We have David, King David, the man after God's own heart, as we've heard him called, the, the ruler, the leader of Israel, commits adultery. He even indirectly commits murder. He sinned, sinned against God, against his wife, against his friend Uriah, against his office that he held, you could argue, against his people. And God says there was consequences for that sin. And it's in the midst of his grief and his guilt that David writes Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When I read that, I think uh, it's pretty clear that David recognized what he did. He knew he messed up. That he had hurt people around him. That he had hurt his relationship with God. That he's, he's done this thing that's actually created a further separation from God. Who, if you read the story of David, a God that he's worked so hard to be close to and to draw near to and to obey... And when this happens, David realizes that what he's done is not just hurt physically the people around him, but it's it's separated him from God. He writes this song or this psalm in almost a prayer. He's praising God at times, lifting up God, recognizing who God is, the sovereignty and the righteousness of God. He also pleads with God. He asks for mercy, for comfort. David says a lot of things in Psalm 51, and in sort of our normal way of, of doing things, we're going to highlight a few of them, and uh, I want us to reflect on how we could maybe incorporate some of this into our own prayer life, into our own communication with God. And I think we can apply this even when we don't feel right with God, if you know what I mean. We don't always feel... It, It's not always easy to just sit down one day and pray. Sometimes I find it's the hardest when I haven't done it. (laughs) Right? We start feeling like that person who only comes to God when we need something. And so I think it's interesting to recognize the context with which David approached God in Psalm 51. David had just done probably, if we look at his life, probably the worst decision. Probably some of the biggest mistakes he makes in terms of direct impact to his life. 
I didn't know David personally, but I think this is probably one of the points where I would imagine he felt the most distant from God. And so I think if, if David can pray to God in this way, even at this low point in his life, I think there's some application we can make no matter really where we are in our own relationship with God. Even if we don't feel right, as I was kind of talking about. Which really uh, kind of segues pretty well into the first point I wanted to kind of make, which is right from the first verse of the chapter, the Lord is our comfort. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Even in verse 3, he's wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Even in a time of sin, even in a time where David is, David is grieving the death of his child, which is indirectly or directly, however you want to view it, somehow or another, it's, it's his own fault. And he's grieving and he's upset and he doesn't blame God, which I think is very interesting. I think it's very interesting because if I put myself in David's shoes, I would have a really hard time not blaming God if I'm David. I would have a, would have a really hard time not being very angry after the death of my child. David doesn't look to God to blame God. He looks to God for comfort. He says, wash me of my sin. Fix me. I messed up. The Lord is our comfort. When I read this, I think, where do I turn for comfort? Where do we turn for comfort? We've all got things we do that help us find peace, right? That help us kind of, you know, sometimes in the small context when we're just having in the middle of a rough day at work, how we maybe take a little bit of a mental break. Maybe they help us unwind after a particularly long day. Things we go to when we've gotten just a, a wash of bad news over and over, and it's been a, one of those weeks, one of those months, one of those years, some people might say. What are the things we go to when we're looking for comfort? If we made a list, if we made a list of those things, where, where is time with God on that list? Some people, it might, might not be the number one, but maybe it's in the top five, right? Maybe it makes the, the rankings. Is it on there at all? Do we think about God at all when we look for some way to be comforted? Personally, uh, I, don't, I don't like being around people. <laughs> and I feel like I'm kind of weird in this way, but I don't like being around people when I'm suffering or when I'm stressed out or when I'm... Uh, bothered particularly. Uh, my wife will tell you I'm actually a, a terrible comforter. I'm not good at being comforting because I myself don't like being comforted by people when I'm upset. Um, I kind of just want to be alone when I'm particularly bothered or emotional about something. Um, but you know, I've, I've, I've learned over the years, or I try to, and I've, I've discovered that simply being alone, uh, especially if you're alone in your own house, is not really that productive. It's definitely not spiritually productive. Um, I, I don't know how this works with you guys, but if you give me options on the weekend, I will do everything except what I actually need to do 
on like a Saturday morning when I don't want to do anything. I will, I will do everything else in the house that is easy, that is right in front of me, things I can do in like five minutes so I can feel productive, and I will completely ignore the two things that actually need to get done. But maybe that's just me. Um, so what I do is I, I've tried to kind of shift that, that the, the need to be alone, that impulse to be alone. I've kind of shifted that to taking time outdoors. Um, I get out of the house, you know, I try to remove myself from the distractions, maybe I'll turn off the phone and just kind of step out. Sometimes I'll go up to, uh, to Crockett, to the, the park up by our house in Lawrenceburg. Sometimes I'll just drive out through the, the hills and the farmland, you know. Sometimes it's just the front porch, just step outside for a little bit. Because um, for me, that's, that's where I feel closest to God. Uh, maybe that makes sense to you. Maybe it doesn't make any sense at all. But it's, it's not really here in a building. It's, it's actually outside, weirdly enough. Because um, to me, when I'm, when I'm outside just sort of taking it in, that's when even in like the darkest, most difficult or frustrating times, even those times where like David, my instinct is to be mad at God about something, when I'm outside and just kind of, like I said, just taking it in, it's very hard for me to deny the presence, the existence, and the power of God. When I'm outside and I'm looking at just hills of farmland, I'm looking at the pines and the trees or the lakes or the sunrise or the sunset, I just, I, that's what does it for me. That's when I feel close to God. That's how I find comfort. In God. That's what it's really about. We've got to figure out what it is for us, what does it for us, what's our natural inclination when we get bad news, and figure out how do we shift that, how do we deal with that, and how do we find ways to be closer to God? How do we find ways for God to be our comfort? As I said, if we're making that list, we've got to figure out ways to, to move time with God up the list things we do and of things we seek whenever we need comfort. I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Lord wants to hear for us when we, when we mourn, when we're grieving. When Paul writes 2 Corinthians, this opening line in 2 Corinthians to the, to the church is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Right there next to his, his lordship and his titles and everything else, Paul says he's the God of all comfort. He wants to be the source of our healing and our, our soothing when we're in need. In verse 8, David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David seeks comfort in the Lord. The second, uh, the second one that I wanted to highlight from the text, I, I came up with a few different things, and I couldn't really just put it into one word, and I, that really encompassed what I was trying to say. And so I settled on the Lord is God. And I know that sounds a little bit redundant at first, but reading Psalm 51 over and over, David recognizes the Lord's sovereignty, his power, his eminence, his greatness, he recognizes the Lord's role as, as judge of our sin. 
as the judge of our, of our lives, of our actions, as ruler over our lives. David recognizes that the God we pray to and the one we turn to for comfort and the one we seek when we're grieving, he's not just a healer. He's, he's not just the author of wise sayings and it's, it's the word of God is not Eastern philosophy that we can just reflect on in the garden and post on our social media walls. Do those things, don't get me wrong. But they're not just cool things to think about and to say. David recognized that the Lord is God. And that means something to David. That means that, that who he is and, and what he has to say has power, it has weight. It means the sin that causes us to grieve, the trials, the, the temptations that life brings that can cause us sadness or, or particularly uh, distressed. Maybe it's not sin at all, right? Maybe it's just issues in life. Maybe it's just life, <laughs> as we sometimes call it. But that coworker or even family member who's just been a thorn in your side that, that knows how to get you wound up and just gets you kind of out of sorts and that person that you don't like being, it means the Lord can fix that. That's what the Lord being God means. It means the Lord is powerful. He's creator, ruler, master of the universe. There's no problem too big or conversely too small. God. He wants to be our comfort in those small things, but know that when we go to him with big problems, with massive life issues, that there's no prayer too big for God. If we read verse 6, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The Lord is God also means wisdom and truth come from God. Reminded of the words of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. In a world of increasingly fake news, I think the words of Jesus resonate pretty hard, at least for me. Jesus did not say, I am one truth or I am a truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Exclusivity. Only. Eminence. Primar primary ship. That's not a word. I just made it up. Um, not one of many, but the truth. The Lord is truth and his word is truth. When it comes to our day before the Lord, he is judge, jury, and executioner. He gives us the sentence and he carries it out. That's what the Lord being God means. Verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He said, it's my sin against you that matters. The relationship with other people, the way I've affected my life, this, this sucks. Don't get me wrong. He's saying, this hurts. But the real problem is that I've sinned against you. That I've separated myself from my God. God is the one who can make us perfect when we are imperfect. He's the one who can bring us back when we've fallen away. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? The Lord is God. He's holy and righteous. He's the one who judges us in the last day. And the good news, the, the part to me that kind of forms the happy ending of Psalm 51, the good news is that this, this last point is very closely tied to the second point, and that's that the Lord is our comfort, the Lord is our God, the Lord is also our Savior. Over and over, David asked, the, asked God for comfort because it is God who can lift him up. He's not a, a self-help book that tells us to look inwardly to save ourselves, right? The Lord is the one who reaches down and lifts us up. He asked God for forgiveness and mercy because it is the Lord who has the power to forgive sin and to hand out mercy. To deliver us from our own weakness. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The Lord is our Savior. He is the one who can create in us the clean heart. He is the one who can wipe away the old creation and bring in the new I think it's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. That is the power of the God who is our comfort and who is our shelter and who is our strength. That's the power in God. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence... And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The Lord is Savior means the Lord can renew us. He can restore us. He can uphold us. He can save us. That's what Savior means. Deliver me from blood Guiltiness, O oh God. How David begins verse 14. Blood guiltiness. I know some of us have, have, have been born and raised and we're kind of members of the church most of our lives. Uh, but me, I took a bit more of a meandering path through life, I would say, putting it mildly. But I say that to say I know who I am without God. I don't know how many of us have gone on and tried to figure out life on our own. Unfortunately, that's a, <clears throat> a personality trait I've been cursed with since a very young child. If someone tells me to do something a certain way, I'm like, eh, we'll figure it out. How, how many men have thrown away the instructions to something, right? Someone tells us how to put something together. Okay, how many of you have had to dig back in the trash for the instructions because you realize you can't figure out how to put it together and now you've got to go find the, well, guess what? Now I just kind of look at the instructions, <laughs> I did the same thing, right? God gives us instructions. We go, I don't need that. Life's pretty good. I'm figuring this thing out on my own. Well, like most things, it's going really well until it, until it doesn't. <laughs> it works until it stops working. 
I know who I am without God, which is why I know God is our Savior. We need him, and it is he alone who has the power to save. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Told you the psalm has a happy ending. The Lord is our comfort, He is our God, and He is our Savior, and He answers all those who call upon His name. He says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We are the ones willing to make the change. He answers the call. Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Thus says the Lord. Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 17, 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. From the Old Testament to the New, throughout all history, the Lord answers all those who call upon him. If you are seeking God, if you are someone who needs to call upon him, now is the time. We'd love to help you if there's any way we can. If you come forward while we stand and while we sing.